Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. This week I've been away writing. I'm in that interesting stage in which I have the first chapter of a very new book, but I'm finishing the edits of my next novel, which will be out in June 2023. Your book listeners will be the very first to hear about this new book and to have the opportunity to pre-order it, and I'll be sharing Becky Guyatt's amazing cover art with you too. I can't wait to tell you about it soon. My new for 2022 novel, Careering, a comedy about work and why it will never love you back, is available in hardback, published by Sphere in the UK. Careering is also available in North America, published by Doubleday Canada. You can listen to the abridged version on BBC Sounds, featuring the amazing Ellie White as Imogen. If you're in the UK and you'd like a signed copy, Christmas is coming, you can order Careering or any of my books, including my saucy novel Insatiable, now available in paperback, from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. I'll be interviewing Dorno Porter and Jane Fallon about their fabulous new novels on Thursday the 27th of October at Waterstones Piccadilly. Tickets sold out scarily quickly, but now you can join us for the live stream. That means you can wear your pyjamas. And I'll be getting festive with Lindsay Kelk, former guest, on the 7th of November at Waterstones, Birmingham to celebrate her gorgeous new book, The Christmas Wish. A few tickets are still available and I'm going to be surprising someone with something special to hang on their tree. It's not a euphemism, I'm talking baubles. Now, on to today's guest. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. This is a writer we've all grown up reading. I remember staring at the bookshelf in my classroom, seeing her name on the spines and daydreaming about which of her books I would read next. This author is a legend and a national treasure. Former children's laureate Mallory Blackman, who has just published a memoir about her life and career, just saying. Expect poetry, emotion from me, and a truly dazzling set of reading recommendations. I could not be more grateful for Mallory's wisdom, generosity and time. I hope you find her words as moving as I did. Well, first, congratulations. Um, I love your memoir so much. And oh, thank you. I just couldn't stop reading it. And it's that amazing quality, I think. Of you. And, I, you know, you write and talk about being a storyteller. And 
the way that I just felt so sort of so pulled into this this story and held. Um, you talk about the importance of libraries and that intense connection you had with them and how much they meant to you. So I was hoping we could maybe start by you talking a little bit about like the earliest trips to the library yes. you remember and how it felt and what you discovered. Well, um, I remember my trips to the library as um, my first foray into independence because it was the only place my mum and dad would let me go from a very young age by myself. And I just remember the first time I went to a library and just looking around and being in awe of all of the books that were available. And it felt like they were just waiting for me to read them. You know, it's sort of like I took possession of them. And I, and even though they were sort of only on loan, it really felt like they were all mine. And all I had to do was just walk up the road to my, you know, to the library. And then I could take the next lot out and I could take the next lot out. So, um, you know, I say in my autobiography, I absolutely lived in my library most Saturdays um, and just reading as many books as I could until they were chucking people out. And then I would take out the books and try and make them last until the following Saturday. And it was from that, I think, that my love of reading came. And not just a love of stories, but also a, lo- a, a the desire to create my own. You know, so it was all thanks to my local library because I couldn't afford to buy the books myself. And my dad was very much, he was about facts, not fiction. And for him... um the only way we would get on in this world is if we learnt facts, if we had numbers and, and facts at our fingertips and dates and so forth. And and so fiction didn't lend itself to that. So he thought it was a complete and utter waste of time reading any. So, But he was all for learning about the planets and, and you know, and the moons going, all the names of the moons going around them or about biology or um, the animal kingdom and so forth. And I've come across that, that kind of attitude since then. But I find it fascinating because I think what taught me the most about other people and how other people live were the, the fiction books I read. And it really did give me an insight into human nature. So I, I think he got that so wrong. But unfortunately, I, I think it is a, an attitude that, you know, maybe some people do have in that they feel there's more value to nonfiction than there is to fiction. I love the idea of reading for pure pleasure and if fiction can be sort of if it can just feel like a hundred percent treat if children don't think oh well this is you know something we must do and something we must learn but if you feel like you're getting away with something if you spend the whole day reading stories at the library I think that's kind of wonderful oh absolutely and I I think there's and I think you know we shouldn't get sniffy about books that are just purely for entertainment and and it is so important that children read for pleasure as well, I mean, and it shouldn't be a chore and it shouldn't be something to get through. And I, and I remember, um, when I was at school, I used to love comics. And I think comics were part of the reason that, again, I, I, I grew to love reading. Um, because I, and I, I remember starting off with like the standard ones, the, the Beano and the Dandy. And then I moved on to Bunty and Ginty and, you know, Tammy and whatever, Mandy. And so, and the thing about those were they, they used to cost two pence. And they would always end on a cliffhanger because, of course, they wanted you to buy the next week's. So I think it was from that that I learned my my love of kind of trying to leave my own stories on a cliffhanger at the end of each chapter. But I do remember, you know, reading one of my comics and my teacher walking into the classroom and and seeing what I was reading and striding up to me. She snatched the comic out of my hand, tore it in half and said, don't read that rubbish. 
And I was so angry because, A, that was my pocket money yeah. that had just torn up. Um, Evangelism. And, well, exactly. And, and the thing is, it, I was reading. Yeah. And, and, and I just, and so I, I have no time for that kind of sniffy attitude about, you know, if you're not, if you're not reading kind of Dickens, then it's not proper literature. Um, and that's not, that's not to say I'm, you know, against Dickens. I'm not because I've loved a, lo- a number of his books, but what we should do is embrace the, not just the sort of a, a depth of reading, but a breadth of reading as well. And I think that for children, if they're reading something and they find it enjoyable and fun, What's the problem? And, 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 and I do feel like, um, when I grew up, I, I graduated on two kind of things like, um, Spider-Man and the, the sort of Marvel comics and the DC comics and so on. And even now, I remember reading, um, Alan Moore's book, V for Vendetta. Um, and that was when I was in my late teens, early twenties, I think it was. I had never read anything like it. I thought it was amazing. Even now, it's still one of my favorite books. You know, and it was just, again, one of those things where I thought, gosh, look what you can do with a graphic novel. You A whole complex world, complex ideas, ideas to make you sit and think. And I love that. And, that's and, and you know, it was from Viva Vendetta that my love of kind of graphic novels came. But I know Alan Moore isn't a fan of having them called graphic novels. He calls them, he prefers to kind of just call them comic books or comic form. But I think it's such a form that's underrated. I think you're absolutely right. And just then, when you were talking about comics, and you know, you said it's not the same as reading Dickens. Like, well, I was just thinking, surely Dickens was like he was the OG comic guy. He was Indeed. writing serials. He exactly. wanted to get people to get to the next one, and well, he was exactly. writing to entertain. And you know, and that's why you know, and when I first started reading Dickens, and I kind of thought oh gosh, is this going to be really dry? And I, and I, and they certainly weren't. And I got lost in them because it was this thing of kind of writing to, I mean, I think the Pickwick Papers was him writing in sort of serial form, you know, and so I kind of feel he, he absolutely got it. It's this thing of trying to get people to read on. So when I read a sort of Oliver Twist or David Copperfield or Great Expectations, I absolutely love them. Um, and it was things like, you know, and I, and, and my first foray into the classics, for example, was when I was 11 and the public librarian gave me Jane Eyre to read. And, um, and I thought, oh my goodness. Okay. Let's give this a try. Cause I'd read, practically read everything in the children's library. So they kind of thought, okay, we don't want to lose you. So kind of go on to some adult books, but they gave me Jane Eyre first. And the first chapter, chapter and a half, I was thinking, mm, not sure about this. And then I got lost in it. It slowly drew me in. And to this day, it's still one of my favourite books. And I must have read, goodness knows how many times I've reread that book. Um, and then the second book that the public librarian gave me was Rebecca, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. And oh my goodness me, I had never read anything like it. And the fact that, you know, she was at the start of the story, she's dead. But she hangs over the whole story in such a phenomenal way. And the twists and turns of the story and the way it unfolds in a way I didn't expect. Again, I fell in love with that book. And so I've always been a fan of books that that kind of surprise me, that kind of I think are going in one direction and they go in another. I love that. I love having the rug pulled out from under me when I'm reading and I'm thinking, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. So, you know, so thank you for all the public librarians and school librarians who suggested books to me, who handed me books that I might not have picked up myself because they just so expanded my reading horizons and they gave me 
they they've left such an indelible impression in that I read these books and they still stay with me. And while I might not remember every plot point or whatever, I still remember the way they made me feel. Yes. And I love that. And I think that comes up in your uh, autobiography too, that there are so many the characters in your life, I guess, who have had such a striking impact, whether it was that the teacher who took your comic away, who mm. I now hate. Um, <laughs> I, but I love the part where I think you're reading, um, is it uh, Troilus and Cressida in English? Yes. And your English teacher said, it's so misogynistic. I think Shakespeare had the crap when he wrote this. And your <laughs> shock and delight and that make me think, Shakespeare was, he was just a guy. Yes, exactly. Doing um, human things. Um, I mean, that was the first time I had thought of Shakespeare as a real person and not this iconic figure who kind of descended from the heavens kind of thing. And it just struck me that here, here was a guy who put on his pantaloons one leg at a time. He was the same as everybody else. <laughs> um, you know, but he just had this this mastery of language that I loved. It was such a revelation when she said that. And I remember sort of the twinkle in her eye as she kind of moved on to the, with the text. And we all sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness me, did she really say that? That, he, that Shakespeare might have had an STI when he wrote the book because he was so it's so misogynistic. I love that. And, and again, that was revelatory because it was writers are real people. Well, who would have thought, you know? <laughs> so again, that was my first, because we never had authors coming into our school. So for me, when I thought of authors, I thought of authors as absolutely rich, uh, 95% male and always white. And that was the view I had of, of writers. And so again, it was just the dismantling of that notion as I got older and older. Um, but I think if it hadn't been for that dismantling, I wouldn't have become a writer myself because it's very hard to be it when you don't see it. And I had never seen books or even protagonists um, who were black in any of the novels I read. And the first black protagonist I came across was when we were doing Othello, Shakespeare's Othello, when, that, when I was doing my A-levels. Um, so again, it's something that I kind of feel was missing from, and in all those thousands and thousands of books, that I loved, most of which I enjoyed, some of which I didn't, but they, in all of them, there were no black children, there were no black adults, there, were just no, there was no black presence. And I felt it, and I, I knew it and I felt it, and I felt excluded from a world that I loved. So, you know, so it was only after reading The Colour Purple by Alice Walker, when I was 21, that I kind of thought, oh my goodness, you can have black authors and you can have, you know, black protagonists. So it, again, it was it was it was that slow dismantling. I think that all led up to me my own journey in becoming a writer. The heartbreak it makes me so angry and so stunned. Like for you, the passionate, avid reader, someone who, as you know, you go into here the the crises you go through as a child and in your teens and books this lifeline, and you get to twenty one without seeing yourself. I just I think we're so far from understanding the damage that has done culturally and we're in the earliest earliest stages of beginning to shift that oh i absolutely agree with that and i think i mean it was a major part of the reason why i became a writer in the first place you know selfishly to write for the child in me who would have loved to have read mysteries and thrillers and whodunits and so forth which had ostensibly nothing to do with race but featured black characters but also i think it was I think what it does is I, for children and young adults, part of they, the way they learn empathy for others is through the books they read, through kind of feeling that 
they're not alone or that somebody understands what they're going through if they read a book where the protagonist is going through the same or a similar situation. And even if it's outside of your own experience, you learn to empathise with kind of what the character's going through and why they've acted in particular ways and so forth and to put yourself in their shoes. But if you don't read books that are about anyone except people who look like you, how do you have empathy for people who look different to you? So I kind of feel it is, it is so important that we have, we include different voices. And I'm not just talking about um, characters of colour in this. I'm talking about neurodivergent characters or characters who may be from traveller or Romany backgrounds or who have, may have mental and physical challenges and so on. There's still, a, I, I think, a, a paucity of kind of, those kind of stories where we are just living life with which is kind of different from the the sort of established norm and I think we are moving away from that um and we are beginning to be more inclusive particularly in the world of children's books there's a ways to go still but it's certainly better than it was when I first started uh writing and it's much much better than it was when I was when I was reading as a child and a teenager and I think you know I can you imagine um, going through this world and only reading about people like yourself. God, that, wouldn't that be boring? <laughs> you know, and, and, and imagine if you, if books, life without books like, um, Life of Pi or, or there's so many wonderful writers from around the world or, and, and, and I can't imagine not having that kind of to, to draw on and those stories to read and, and those stories to kind of, to kind of expand my horizons. Because when I was a child, um, I mean, some of the books I loved were myths and legends from around the world. And and things like um, Metamorphosis, Ovid's Metamorphosis. Or, uh, and I used to love the kind of like r- the Greek and Roman myths and legends. One of my favourite books, in fact, was the New LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology. And I remember when I was a teen buying that, and it was a lot of money. It was a huge book. But it was wonderful because it had it had sumptuous photographs showing the culture and the architecture from most parts of the world. And then it had the mythology to go along with that. Um, I have to say, Africa was the continent of Africa was not included in that. But I love reading kind of all the, all the other cultures in it. And that's why, you know, one of my A-levels was classical civilization, because I that love of the myths and the legends of the Greek and Roman world. Um, and and from all around, I kind of feel that that fed into this this desire to know more about the planet I was living on and the people who inhabited it and where they were coming from. And that and I think on on Earth there are th- things that are universal, and that would be maths, and that would be music, and that would be stories, and the need for stories and in, in, in whatever form. And I think stories for me is a way of connecting and communicating with other people and that's why I've always had a love for them. It's interesting because you talked about comics and graphic novels before mm. and things like Marvel and Viva Vendetta and and they're all myths and legends and they've all got those elements and those retelling and I, I think mm. stories are regenerative too and we keep telling and we keep working and developing and growing. Every story that is written and is read leads to more stories it's magical oh it is it's sort of like a bit like a morbius strip isn't it you kind of keep see there's no beginning no end we just keep telling these stories and i mean i read something that said once there's only seven plots in the entire on yeah. the entire planet <laughs> but you know isn't it amazing that even if that's true and if there are only seven plots you can do so many things with them and and we could be in the same setting 
but how you react to it and how I react to it are going to be so different. And that's what makes it interesting. And that's it. the first thing I get when I'm writing a story is I get my story arc. But the thing I spend the most time on are my developing my characters. Because I think it's the characters who make or break a story. And you can have a really kind of high concept idea or whatever. But if the characters don't work, it's going to be, well, I, don't, I can't relate to this. I don't believe this. Which is why, you know, one of the genres I love is science fiction. But for science fiction to work for me, it has to have characters that I can relate to and that are believable. And I remember another book I found when I was 11 was a book called Chocky by John Wyndham. And it was a, it's the first science fiction book I remember reading as opposed to kind of just straight up fantasy like the myths and legends. And I remember, and it was about this, this child, um, the, the boy comes across this child and, and he's not sure, quite sure if it's a, a boy or a girl and it, and it, and the rest of his family think it's sort of an imaginary friend but then Chucky begins to kind of she lets him know kind of like maths equations and she kind of expands his mind and then his family start getting worried about the influence this invisible friend is having on him and I read that and I was like wow this is amazing and then I went through the whole of John Wyndham's oeuvre and it was kind of like um you know and I and I love that and I think also what science fiction gave me is it gave me a love for the short story form which is so underrated even now because I think there's something about short stories that are done well where it's kind of almost a sort of literal hit and run kind yeah. of um, uh, where you, they kind of hit you and then they're gone it's a bit more than an amuse bouche if you're kind of like you know you're eating or whatever but it is this thing of kind of wow what's an amazing idea and it's encapsulated in in so few pages some of the comics i loved like the tales of the crypt and you know um and and the haunted house and suspense stories and and mystery stories and so forth that were in comic form always gave you these short stories in this sort of in, in, in comic form. But some of them were kind of meh, but some of them were amazing. I thought, my goodness me, but then they were gone. But I love that. And then it's, you know, so and then short stories by, you know, real practitioners of the art. And that just kind of I'd read and think, wow, that is so amazing. I love the fact that it's just this it might be just a short story that gives you a an idea or leaves you with an idea or leaves you with a kind of twist in the tale. And I've always loved those. I do think that short stories are a kind of boot camp for anyone who's mm. a, a new writer or wants to be a writer, like writers at all stages, because you can't waste anything. You've yes. got to be so, to do it well, really make an impact. You've got to be such an economist and a stylist. It's like, um, you know, if you go to a fancy restaurant, it's mm. like a tiny, tiny micro magic something on a yeah. plate it's that intensity which i love isn't it just i mean I, i'm thinking of a book like the, the what's it called the the blue lenses and other stories by daphne de maurier and i remember there and there was one story i think it was the blue lenses where this woman has an eye operation and she wakes up and every person around her including her, her husband has an animal's head they no longer have their human head they have animal heads and the animal heads represent who they are inside. And I remember reading this and my face was just like yours because it was, oh my God. And the fact that, you know, she was seeing people as they really are, as represented with the animal faces, it was such a shock. But it was kind of, wow, I love that. It's stories like that. And I mean, like, things like, uh, stories like the ones you get in Needful Things or Four Past Midnight from Stephen King. <sighs> and again, I haven't read 
I haven't read many of his novels. I mean, the standard ones like Carrie and Misery and so forth I've read. But his short stories I absolutely love because he he absolutely gets human nature. And I love things where they kind of, you have these outrageous things going on, but what he's delving into is human nature. You know what I was saying before? Like if we could be in the same scenario, the same setting, but how we handle it would make the story. I remember one of his stories, I think it was called The Langoliers. And it was basically um, some people on a plane and some of them fell asleep. And when they woke up, they were in this, the, the plane was flying, but they had these weird colours around them and it was really strange. And, and they had a pilot who had been asleep and the co-pilot and everybody else had disappeared. So everyone who was awake had disappeared and it was only the ones who had fallen asleep. And they managed to land the plane, but these langoliers are kind of, chomping through everything and leaving just nothing and the langoliers are meant to be tidying up the past but it's how each of the characters deals with that situation and how it suddenly dawns on them that that where they are and these things are coming for them and they need to get out of there and will they be able to so i'm not gonna no more spoilers (laughs) but again it was it was this i love this kind of the ideas and the kind of wow i you know how do they get through this and so on the pure, pure entertainment that short stories can give you. I just love that. And in fact, you know, I've read um, in, in other cultures, the mysticism and reality walk hand in hand. There's no need to kind of separate. This is a fantasy book and that's over there. And this is a, a book that's more realistic and this, that's in a, on another shelf kind of thing. In other cultures, the two do absolutely walk in hand in hand and you, you can kind of believe in that and, and it's just part and parcel of life. And I think certain practitioners like Daphne du Maurier, again, embrace that where you have an extraordinary premise, but it's kind of like, but okay, but how did the characters cope with that? Which is why I, I kind of, I love that short story collection of hers. Uh, cause I'm also, I love sort of films and TV and stuff. And I just, it's interesting to me watching films from other cultures where that mysticism and that uh, the the paranormal and so forth are treated as more everyday and perhaps mundane even than perhaps you get in stories uh, from the Western world where it is kind of seen as it's an it's a completely different genre of film in the way that we have like the MCU and and the kind of superheroes and so forth. But then is that that maybe that's just the modern version of all the myths and legends and so forth I read as a child where we're looking for heroes and, and heroines and we're looking for people who are above and beyond what we are. But I think the most interesting books to me are the ones where you have ordinary people who step up and become those heroes and, and who and who have to make that choice to find something within themselves and they step up and they run towards danger when other people are running away from it. And those heroes, to be honest, I find more interesting. Although that said, as a teen, I, I because I was a bit of a misfit, I love the idea of perhaps being something to explain that, to explain why I felt such a misfit. And I think, you know, there's a book called Black Hole by Charles Byrne. He wrote this book about um, teenagers, basically. It's set in, in the 1970s in Seattle, I think it is. And this plague descends on this suburban part of Seattle and it affects teens and it's kind of um, passed on by sexual contact. But it's how some of them try and hide what they are, how it's affected them. Some of them embrace it 
and then murders start happening and so forth but it speaks to teenagers because i think the teen years are when you particularly feel like you're trying to find your place in the world you're trying to find out who you are and trying to work out who everybody else is and your place within that and your place in the wider world and so the stories for teens um do tend to kind of address a lot of stories for teens rather do try to address that and try and and a lot of teens feel like they just don't belong or they're they don't quite fit it fit in whether it's within their family or within school or whatever and so i think as a number of stories do try and address that and tr- and and do try and speak to that and i think that's such a powerful feeling isn't it because also the way that books make us feel understood where there maybe aren't people who make us feel mm. understood and i don't want to assume anything but i was just thinking about how powerful it sounds for you to be 11 and you've read pretty much all the books in the library in your sort of your section you've outgrown it and to have this person saying look this is for you mm. and Jane Eyre you know that was sort of a very very different time and place and set of circumstances but I think that book endures because she's a misfit and everyone yes. who's ever felt like they're out of place and they don't fit in find something that resonates with them. Yeah I absolutely agree because the point of with Jane Eyre is She's not particularly pretty, as she says. She's not particularly accomplished, but what she does have is strength of character. And, you know, and I, do, I remember one scene where uh, Mr. Rochester asks her to play the piano and she says, I, I play a little. And then he's, he insists that she plays the piano and then he stops her and he says, I, you were right, you do play a little. And, you know, <laughs> and, it was sort of, and I remember that and I thought, and, I, and it just, again, it's this thing of, um, you might not be particularly pretty or whatever, but, but it's the strength of character that sees you through. And I suppose, again, it's, it's, it's kind of the way I love fairy stories as a child, because fairy stories told me that evil exists in the world, but evil can be defeated most of the time. I mean, in some Hans Christian Andersen stories, it wasn't, you know, like The Little Mermaid. But that said, again, it was about the strength of character to kind of overcome that evil. And I think telling not being truthful with our children and letting them know that there are there is evil in the world there are bad people out there and so forth but they it can be overcome does our children and our young adults a disservice and i think that's again that's part of the reason i love those and i think going back to jane eyre it was the idea of kind of have more three-dimensional characters where edward rochester isn't a total hero and it's you know and, and it's kind of what he did with the, with his 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 wife and you know the fact that she's locked up and so forth but the fact that he, then he was prepared to commit bigamy to be with jane but then you kind of understand again what drove him to that and the fact that jane is kind of she's she's a match for him and that's what i loved about it it wasn't kind of like Oh, the hero and Simpa Simpa and, you know, and, and, and so on. She held her ground and she, she stood up for herself and she spoke back to him and so on. And that's what he fell in love with. And that, that's a message I think that, that kind of resonated with me and the idea of kind of be true to yourself. You know, the, 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 the classic Shakespeare line to thine own self be true. I absolutely agree with that. And I, that's what I loved about her. And I, and, and the fact that as a governess, she was probably in her late teens. Certainly no, no, no older than her early twenties when she became a governess at, um, Thornfield Hall. So I, I kind of feel, you know, that it, again, it spoke to me because her age wasn't a million miles away from my own when I read it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We'll be back with Mallory soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen What Time is Love by Holly Williams, the story of Violet and Albert who meet when they're 20 in 1947, and in 1967, and again in 1987. This is one of my favourite books of 2022, a gorgeously written, thought-provoking love story about social change. It will stay with you long after you've turned the final page. Holly is one of my oldest friends. We've been writing together since we were 20 on various short stories and in university creative writing groups and our early journalism efforts. It's been a delight to see her writing evolve and to see this fabulous novel fly. As the days get darker, reading this is the very best way to spend a spare afternoon. What Time is Love is published by Orion and out now. Now back to Mallory. Something that I'd love to ask you about I suppose, which is to do with self-expression and being true to yourself is poetry. And this autobiography is filled with wonderful, moving poems. And they're so direct and it's amazing to read because, you know, I I felt as though you were talking to me and to hear your voice. It's all, you know, obviously written in the first person. But then the poems are just a sort of extra, like, unpeeled layer of intimacy. And I'd love to hear about the poets you read and your relationship with poetry and the how poetry is moved you throughout your life well you know what poetry has always played a big part of my life always from nursery rhymes onwards and I have to say I think part of the reason I love poetry is because we always had the radio on in our house and we had a huge gramophone and we'd play we'd play records but I love listening to the lyrics and my even now my favorite songs are lyrics that have something to say and for me it was just poetry with music added so you got the best of both worlds but I remember again as a I, I'd read things like Alice in Wonderland and and Through the Looking Glass, and I remember you know the, the poetry in those I loved that, that made me laugh. You know, particularly uh, there's one poem that Humpty Dumpty was telling Alice that began um, in winter when the fields are white. I sing this song for your delight. In spring when woods are getting green, I'll try and tell you what I mean, and so on. And I loved that poem so much. I learnt it by heart, and all the poems I loved, I learnt by heart. Things like um, Matilda, who told lies and was burned mm. to death, you know, and sort of Hilaire Belloc. And, and 
one of my favourite books as I was growing up was the Penguin Book of Light Verse, which was edited by Gavin Ewart, I believe. And I devoured that and I read all the poems. And the poems range from um, Chaucer right up to kind of modern day. And and that was my introduction to people like Ogden Nash. Um, and then I went and got, I, I bought his book, The Golden Trash, Trashery of Ogden Nashery. Um, <laughs> you know, and it was, and I, and you know, and, and, and they were just so many poems that spoke to me. And another one of my favorites was, uh, a, a choice of comic and curious verse. And that was, I think that was edited by J.M. Cohen. And then I had the, in my tw- early twenties, I had the Penguin Book of Caribbean verse. And then it was people like the poets like James Berry and Grace Nichols and Benjamin Zephaniah who spoke to me in my in my early twenties. And again, it was just the something about the form and the immediacy and the way you could get to the heart of something and with no extraneous kind of padding and so on. It was kind of and for me, that's why there are certain parts of my life in the autobiography that I could only tell as narrative verse. Because when I tried to tell them as prose, I felt I was, they were so painful to write, I kind of felt myself withdrawing from that. But when I told them as narrative verse, as poetry, then I, I just wrote it out as it came to me. And I think it hit harder for that and it's more truthful and more raw for that. So I think, Poetry has always been a huge part and parcel of my life. And and people like Maya Angelou, she was such a craftswoman when it came to poetry. And I remember going to see her in concert twice. Um, and the way that her, her poems were so funny, but on point. And I remember seeing uh, Wendy Cope reading some of her poetry and again, just loving what she had to say. And so, you know, so for me, Poetry is absolutely part of that kind of, if you want to give a child uh, or a young adult stories they will enjoy and, and things to think about and things to make them laugh and things to, and ideas and stories to make them cry, include poetry within that, absolutely. I think what's so huge about poetry, especially for children, is so many poems are so funny and you can mm. be heartbreakingly sad and furious and then hilarious and this idea of sort of the thrill of like oh my goodness is this allowed and I still remember Mm. that my parents had that sort of Hilaire Belloc compendium and it's one Mm. of those really tattered old like very like orange I think it must have been a puffin book you know really like yellowed and I don't know why I picked it up because it really sort of felt like an old book and kind of flicking through and then that last line Matilda in the house were burnt and it's a feeling of like someone had taken the handbrake off and you were going down a hill that was so steep it was vertical I suppose in a way that you know maybe writers like Roald Dahl did later Mm. I'm sure Mm. he must have been a big influence but oh I, you know, and everything I'd read before, like Matilda would be safe. Yes, exactly. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll never put anything on fire again. It was a really vicious, but in the way that use of language and that the idea that the language itself could be so fun and funny and electric. Mm, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, and that's why. I mean, that is again one of the ones I learned by as soon as I read it, I had to learn it by heart. And I loved, you know, that thing of um. But one night a fire did break out. You should have heard Matilda shout. You should have heard her scream, scream and ball and, ball and throw the, the window, window up, up and, and call. call to people passing in the street. The rapidly increasing heat encouraged her to obtain their confidence. 
but all in vain. For every time she shouted, fire, they only answered, as a, as a little liar. Indeed. And therefore, when her aunt returned, Matilda, Matilda and, the, and house the house were burned. burned. I mean, and doesn't that stay with you? And as Have you, you say, got goosebumps? I've got goosebumps. <laughs> but you know what? It was one of those, like you said, it was one of those things where, oh my God, she didn't get rescued. And oh my God, you know, I, and I know it was kind of told as a kind of cautionary tale kind of thing. <laughs> But the fact that the tone of it was kind of, it's so skippy and trippy as you're reading yeah. it with that kind of ending. And I just thought, wow. And I had to learn it. And I, and I, it's still one of the poems that has stayed with me to this day. And I must have learned that when I was like, you know, nine, 10 or something. So I think with poetry, it's one of those things that when it's something that you love, it stays with you. It absolutely stays with you. And things like, you know, just the Jabberwocky, for example. Yes. Or, um, the time has come, the war has said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax and cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot, and whether pigs have wings. And again, that stuck with me because I thought, I love that, I love the imagery, but it was all kind of, well, you know, the sea isn't boiling hot, but I love the idea of the sea being boiling hot and so on. And it's, and so poetry has always had such a massive part of my life, been a massive part of my life. And in fact, you know, when my parents split up, I wrote so much poetry because, again, it felt like there was no one I could talk to about how I was really feeling. So I'd pour all my feelings down in poetry, most of which was terrible, but it was an outlet. It was a safety valve. It was a way of me expressing myself. But what it did is it made me unafraid of expressing true emotions and thoughts and feelings in the books I later went on to write. And and I'm very grateful for that. I didn't realise it at the time, but that's what it gave me. And I think it's such it's such an accessible form because a lot of children who struggle with reading, dense prose on a page, it can be off putting. Whereas if you give them a story told in narrative verse, um, it, with a lot more white space between it, they, it's something they can kind of engage with more, and it's not quite maybe quite as intimidating. And when you look at books, that are, that are stories that are told in narrative verse, like One by Sarah Crossan. Have you read that one? Yes, I, I do know that one. That's It's it's amazing. It's about conjoined twins called um, Grace and Tippy. And it's about their, their lives together. And then they want to have an operation to try and separate them. Phenomenal book. Another one by Dean Atter, The Black Flamingo. Have you read that one? Yeah, I love Dean Atter. Oh, isn't he amazing? And and again, I just, I read that absolutely blown away by the imagery and the story he had to tell. I did one, I must admit, and it was immediately after I had writer's block. And I wondered, and I had writer's block and it was, and you know, and a month turned into two, turned into three. And I wondered if I'd ever write again. And then I, and in the end, I gave up sitting in front of my computer because nothing was coming. And I, but I surrounded myself with creative activity. So I, I saw more plays at the theatre and I went to museums and I went to art galleries. I mean, I've always done that, but I made a thing of kind of at least two, three times a week, I would do this. And I bought a book on how to draw. And I, and I, and I read, read through that and tried all the exercises. I still can't draw, but it was, you know, a really good sort of book for exercises. But that said, slowly I began to have an idea for a story, but I was terrified to write it because I thought, supposing I sit down at my computer and nothing happens. And then I thought, I really want to tell this. So I sat down and I tried writing it and it was a bit meh. And I thought, no, and it was about being different and and embracing the, the fact that if you are different to everybody else, embrace that. And then 
I thought, well, actually, how about if I told this in a different way and I told it and I wrote it as narrative verse and then everything just clicked and that's how I got over my writer's block and then that's how my book Cloud Busting was born. And in Cloud Busting, I explore, it's mostly free verse, but there's a chapter that's all haikus and there's a chapter that's a, a sonnet and, so it's, and, and there's a chapter in blank verse and there's a chapter that's lim- limericks and, and so on. So I explore different forms, but it's telling the story of one boy who's bullying another and the bully is the one telling the, the story and realising that actually the boy he's bullying is the most interesting boy in the class. Um, he's bullying, it's Sam, and Sam's bullying this boy called Dave and they become sort of secret friends and Sam realises that Dave is actually one of the most interesting boys in the class because he just has a different way of seeing the world. And I dedicated it to my daughter with Dare to be Different um, as the kind of line at the, on the dedication page. But that was the book that broke me out of my writer's book because I was writing in a different form. So again, as I said, you know, poetry just means so much to me. And I and, and whenever I go do school talks and things and people say, I don't like poetry. And I say, well, do you like songs? And they say, oh, yeah. And I say, well, isn't that just poetry? But it's got, you know, with music, actually, it's got me. And I'm not, that's not to disparage the music, because obviously the music is part and parcel of a song. But that said, it is, you know, these songs are poetry. And, if, and, and I get them to tell me about some of the songs they like and why they like them. But I said, but that's a way of expressing emotion and encapsulating that within a three minute song. So, you know, so I think, again, when a child says to me, Oh, I don't like reading. I always say to them, you haven't found the right books for you yet, because I guarantee if you tell me what sort of things you're into, I can find a book that you're going to love. I mean, that is a superpower, isn't it? (laughs) And I was thinking of, you know, that just then, and sort of, it's not really too much of a leap from, you know, cake by the ocean to if the sea is boiling hot. Yes, indeed, exactly. I mean, I mean, it's a sort of uh, different feel to it and so forth. But the point is, if you, a lot of these songs, if you listen to them, they've got, they can speak to you, they can tell you about, the person singing them or person rapping them or what they have to say. And that said, um, one of the writing exercises I do when I'm, when I'm teaching on Avon courses or whatever is I play a particular, you know, might play a snippet of music and then ask people to write whatever that music conjures up in their head. So even, you know, you can get how classical music and so forth that will still speak to you, that will still inspire poetry within you, that will still inspire stories within you. Like, uh, for example, Quint Mansell's Lux Eterna, and it was used in the film Requiem for a Dream, and make sure you're in a really, really good mood before you watch that film. I mean, (laughs) it's an amazing film, but oh my goodness me, is it hard-hitting. But the music for that is phenomenal, and that music, the Quint Mansell's music is so evocative, and I love the way that kind of just... There's so many things that can inspire poetry within you. Um, Like, just kind of a, a walk on a summer's day, or walking through snow, and 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 I love that where it's the stillness and the calm, that kind of heavy snowfall, kind of just in, inflicts on you almost. And inflict is the wrong word, but it kind of how you, your mood changes to suit that. And again, you know, sort of one of the exercises I do in my class is is kind of um write a conversation between two people, but they're they're sitting on a park bench. And it's blazing sunshine. I mean, it's unbearable sunshine. And then write the same conversation or, or a similar conversation, but they're they're sitting and it's snowing, or it's pouring with rain. And how does the how does the weather change that conversation? Because it's going to have an effect. And so you know, so it's all these things that I love in good books, where they're 
they're setting the scene and you're there and it's very sensory writing and it's kind of you're seeing the world through all your senses and I again I just love that and I think those are the kinds of stories I try and write for teens and for children and so on so that they are exploring the world through all their senses and they and making my characters relatable so that so that they can feel that they could absolutely whoever's reading it feels they absolutely understand what the characters are going through and why they are making the choices they are making. You don't necessarily have to agree with those choices, but I want you to understand why they're making those choices. I'm going to be giving your book to all the writers I know, and I'm a novelist, and I found it really inspiring. I found it so inspiring when you talked about writing hackers and Mm. how that story changed totally, and (laughs) the courage you had where you knew what it was, and publishers are really excited and interested and thought this is, you know, brilliant, but maybe not this for a middle mm. and maybe not this for an end and maybe not this for a beginning and you just became home and like what did you like about it yeah. and that was the, and then you suddenly saw sort of what it was I really wanted to ask you as well whether you know if there are any books that feel have taught you the most about writing that you haven't mentioned already um, but also I'd love to talk about hackers <laughs> <laughs> well you know what I think every book that I've read that I've enjoyed has taught me something about writing, has made me want to be a writer in the first place. Things, you know, apart from the books I've already mentioned, I think books like, I remember the first Agatha Christie book I read was The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. And again, I was blown away with the format of that because I thought it was so clever. And then I just devoured all of her Kilboro and, and Jane Marple stories. And in mm. fact, that's the book I'm reading now, Marple. With the, oh, which one? Yeah, the, the, it's, a, it's a book called Marple. I think it came out last week, in fact. And it's a number <sighs> of mysteries written by different authors, but featuring Miss Marple. And it's just called Marple. Right. We and just had um, Lucy Foley, who I think has written one oh, of those. Right. Okay, yeah, well, and I'm loving that. And I think... You know, so that's that's such an influence. And I think not not just kind of Alice Alice Walker's books, but the bluest eye, Toni Morrison. Oh my God, what a writer! Toni Morrison is so amazing. And but again, it was think the iRobot stories by Isaac Asimov. They had an influence. The Women of Brewster Place by Gloria Naylor. That was uh, that was so. Ooh, I don't know that one. Oh, I, I re- highly recommend it. And and what it is, it's. It's about seven women who live in Brewster Place, but it's telling the stories of each of them. And some are joyful and some are harrowing, but it plays into that idea of you have a, a common setting, and you, but you have the lives of these seven women. But it's almost like it's the best of both worlds because you have it's almost like short stories because you have each of those women's narratives. But they're all linked together through this place and the fact that they and how they support each other. And these women are kind of lifting each other up, especially when when they needed to be supported and lifted. And again, I read that in my 20s and that was phenomenal. And then, you know, just books like The Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, The Odyssey. I adored that book. And I, you know, that, that, again, that's a book I've read more than once. And lots of kind of mysteries that sort of who I love my whodunits and so things like Isaac Asimov's tales of, and of the black widowers and puzzles of the black widowers and I think there's another one called banquets of the black Wid- widowers but they all sit around the table and one of them will present them with a puzzle to be solved there's usually a kind of a it might be a murder mystery or it could be something some puzzle to be solved and then it tends to be the waiter who who's serving them who solves the mysteries um yeah and i really enjoyed those as a teen as well so or, uh, early 20s and so i um 
all of those inspired me and made me want to write and kind of fell into that that love of reading and that love of story and it's a love that once you have it it's kind of insatiable you you can feed it and feed it and feed it and it and it wants more and it always wants more which is wonderful do you have a a reading routine is there a a point in the day that you always make time for reading or are you just trying to get through everything else so you can get back to reading it's a bit both I mean it's more the latter though um (laughs) because obviously when I'm writing it's very hard and especially if I have deadlines it's very hard to find the time to to kind of read but I always like to end my day just reading you know reading in bed and I and that moment of peace and you're kind of just unwinding and 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 I love that and just being getting lost in in a in a good story um and I kind of feel like I have been around the world. I have lived so many lives. I've been off the planet. I've been to other planets and all I had to do is open a book. And I, you know, and I love that. And it just, and I, and I kind of feel that uh, most of my time is spent in my attic at a computer writing stories and so on. But that said, I feel I've lived so many lives and been so many places. And, and I'm really grateful for that because that's, that's what books have given me. I've just finished writing this very short book for an independent publisher called The Pound Project. Noughts and Crosses appears on one of my uh, book lists. But I was talking in that about how, just through reading, I have been to hundreds, maybe a thousand different Londons oh, alone. Yes. And I think I'll go to a thousand more, all the same city, all completely mm. different. It, absolutely. I mean, isn't it? Isn't that amazing that that you, you can see something through someone else's eyes. It's, it's like that. For example, if I were to hold up a piece of paper and it was green, it, well, a, a green piece of paper, and say to you, what colour is this? And you'd say, it's green. And then I, But I always wondered, what are you seeing? And how would that compare to how I see it? And are you seeing a, a deeper green or a lighter green than I'm seeing? So even something where we say green and it conjures up an image, what it paints in my head could, might be completely different to what it paints in yours. And isn't that wonderful? And I and I genuinely do not get people who are scared of that, who are scared of having different voices, who are scared of um, our children or our teens reading books that are kind of from different authors who are exploring different realities. You know, it's like when my, my daughter was 12 or 13 and I, I gave her um, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime to read, Mark Haddon's book. And I said, now, nah, it's got some swearing in it. And she just looked at me and she said, Mum, do you think I haven't heard swearing before? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but it was, it, and I thought, well, that's me told, isn't it? So I gave it to her and then we had a really good discussion at the end of it. And I gave her, you know, um, Wonder, RJ Palaccio's book, Wonder. And again, we discussed that. And I, I've loved sharing stories with my daughter. And she shared stories with me. And then we could kind of discuss them afterwards. And there's, there's a joy in that. And there's a joy in kind of connecting with people through the books you read and being able to communicate that. And, and there's a joy even in, in, even if you don't talk about the books, but what they leave you with. And, yeah. and I think, and it's so important. And I remember when I was children's laureate and one of the things I did was I spent a day at Great Ormond Street Hospital and talking to children about their books and what they read and why they read it and so so on. And it was illuminating. It was one of the experiences as a children's artist that I remember the most vividly. And it was humbling. And, and I, and, but the fact is for so many of those children, reading meant so much to them because it was a way of escaping from their reality. 
but also they wanted to read books about children who were maybe in the same boat as them, who were going through trials and tribulations to show that they could overcome that. You know, some of them knew that perhaps what they had, they would not be leaving hospital. For them, it, it was it was so important that they got to read these stories or they got to read stories about children who triumph, but also about children who were, who were going through stuff. And, and so that they felt that they were not alone. When you get right down to it, maybe that's the reason we all love stories or we all like that, you know, whether we read or not, but we all like stories is because we need to know we're not alone. It's huge, isn't it? It's so powerful. Mm. I still remember being... I think 10 or 11 when I read When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit by Judith mm. Kerr, which is still one of my all-time favourite mm-hmm. books. And Anna leaving Germany as a yes. refugee and reading this book about all these like remarkable sort of, you know, celebrities and famous people and people who've done great things. Mm. And she's saying, and the one thing they all had in common is they had difficult childhoods. And I've yeah. not had a difficult childhood. <laughs> Everything's been fine. That's not fair. And obviously goes on. But that really, really stayed with me. Yes. And this idea as well that um, Anna was curious and excited and mm. wanted to live and wanted to have adventures, but also had the feeling I had sometimes when I was a kid. It's like, well, you know, where are my adventures going to come from? Mm. And then I, I think myself very lucky that, you know, I wasn't a refugee, had to sort of find a home and, you know, mm. travel across Europe. Can you remember any of the books when you were at Great Ormond Street that the the children you spoke to mentioned as being especially resonant for them? I remember one of them was reading the, the Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, another one was reading Pick Up Boy, one of my own books, which was kind oh, of gratifying. Oh. And, and again, because that's about a boy who needs a heart transplant. Yeah, because there's such a great bit in your book. I'm going to tell you about your book. Um, <laughs> but I was saying when you talked about writing that and how important you felt it was to have that conversation about illness and about mortality and things children really face and an adult man saying well I don't think that's suitable for children Mm. well how is is that man qualified to make that call when it is something that children in that position obviously needed well you know but 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 it's 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 a fascinating thing isn't it I think for a lot of adults they get very cherry when a book makes them uncomfortable and they don't like that feeling of being made to feel uncomfortable. And so they, and, and so they try and ban the books or whatever. We're seeing that particularly in America where they're having this thing of removing a number of books from school libraries, books that tend to be written by authors of color or authors who are LGBTQ plus. They tend to be the ones that are predominantly being removed because, um, a lot of these school districts and things that th- think, well, if the book's making me uncomfortable or is making my child slightly uncomfortable, it needs to be removed. But those are the books that need to be, t- the stories that need to be told. And I think with the, the, the children in Great Ormond Street Hospital, I think it's absolutely, they want the escapist, um, stuff and they want happy endings, but they also want books that are not, that are saying you are not alone and, you are seen more to the point. Yeah. Um, and I think that is such an important message to say you are seen. Uh, someone out there sees you, knows what you're going through, empathises with you, knows what it's like when, you know, you have something that people may not want to talk about or they want to skirt around the issue or they want to pretend it doesn't exist in the first place or they are afraid to be near you because they think they might catch something. All of those things I kind of try and de- deal with in my book, Pig Heart Boy. And I think that's why, you know, um, it, more than one person was kind of reading it or had said they'd read it and wanted to talk to me about it. 
and I remember one of them also was reading Mouse. But the story is it's a, it's a graphic novel, and it's um it's about Nazi Germany, where you have the Jewish people are mice and the Nazis are cats. And it's really cleverly done. It's an amazing book, but again, it's so accessible, and it tells you the story of, of how the Jews were persecuted in the sort of during the war and so on. So, again, it was reading that. It was reading one of them. I remember was reading Holes, Lewis Sacker's book Holes, and again, and and I love that book. It was an amazing book, and it, I just love the way all these threads were then just tied up at the end, and very clever. So I think there was there was a whole range of of books they were reading, which was amazing. And again, it was me talking to them about kind of what they wanted to read and why. And most, if not all of them, did not want to shy away from books that spoke to them directly and spoke to their experiences directly. And so I think we do children and young adults a disservice by saying this is not for children, because I think if a child or a young adult can experience something then it's a legitimate subject to write about but it's all in the way it's done and it's the way you tell those stories but you know that's why you know a book that I read as an adult but I've always recommended is a book called Badger's Parting Gifts because it deals with bereavement and it's about um, this badger who's getting very long in the tooth knows he's going to die and then it's how his friends react when he does die but it's about kind of dealing with that and dealing with grief rather than saying suppressing it or not talking about it because that's not healthy. Mm. It really isn't healthy. So I think books that address those kind of things are necessary. They're not just they're not just good to read or whatever, but they are absolutely vital. Yeah. And I think we, again we do our children a disservice by by saying no, that's that's not for you because a subject matter makes me uncomfortable. And unfortunately, that seems to be the way we're going. In the Western world, it is this thing of withdrawing from books that kind of challenge certain norms or certain ways of thinking and so on. Whereas we, you know, the books that challenge that are absolutely needed. That's, you know, because that's what provides our children and our young adults with the facilities for, to think critically and to, yeah. and, and to, and to think about the stories they're being told, who's telling them, why they're telling them. And, and media stories and all the, and so forth. And it's about kind of being able to analyse them critically. And that's what reading gives you. And that's what diverse reading gives you. Mm. Mallory, I could probably talk to you for years and years, but I know you've got <laughs> things to do. So I wanted to finish by asking you about um, reading with your daughter. And you mm. talked about some of the books that you have encouraged her to read. I'd love to hear about the books that she has recommended to you or given to you and she's introduced me to a couple of graphic novels some garth innes graphic novels the witches series she introduced me to that so i'm about to start that because she loves those if she reads a graphic novel or a story that she's really she's really into there's one she 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 did she just finished that i said oh you must you must put it on my to be read pile and i can't remember the let me look up the title but what it is is it's a story about um, all those the people who who then have to kick into action when somebody dies. So from coroners to forensic people to whatever, it's that whole process. All the people who deal with with kind of dead bodies, if you like. Is it All the Living and the Dead by Hayley Campbell? One, that's the one, All the Living and the Dead. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really looking, for, looking forward to read the, reading that because she said she loved that one. So again, that's on my to-be-read pile. So it's kind of, I love that kind of, 
the back and forth we have all me recommending books and her recommending books and so on and I think also I gave her Rosa Parks my story because I have this thing about Rosa Parks and I love her so much and then I just feel so lucky I got to kind of co-write the Doctor Who episode that featured featured Rosa Parks and I incredibly cool and I and I recently gave her um the secret diary of Charles Ignatius Sancho written by Patterson Joseph and it's that's amazing he's written this biography of um Ignatius Sancho and it is phenomenal so if you haven't read it I highly recommend that as well I haven't and I will yeah he's so talented I mean but it's it's an amazing an amazing biography so I I said you you must read this you must read this so it's kind of a two-way street but that's the one she's given me to kind of read so that's the one I want to read next Oh, fantastic. And I bet she loves that as well, if you're getting proofs and things yes. and sneaky previews <laughs> and early copies. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's one of the perks of the job, isn't it? Oh, but for I, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but Mallory, it's just, it has been a joy and delight. I feel utterly lifted and life enhanced. Thank you so, so much. It's been a pure joy. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And thank you very much for inviting me to be a part of this. Huge thanks to Mallory. Her memoir, Just Saying, published by Murky Books, is out now. It's essential reading for anyone who is interested in writing, storytelling and being a human. Be warned, Mallory's words are magic. When you start reading, you won't be able to stop, so clear your day. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends. And thanks so much to everyone who has left a five-star review. If you've been listening for a while and you've not left us a five-star review, we'd love it if you did. It helps other people to discover us and their new favourite books. Your Book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Mallory on acast.com forward slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be back soon with more book chat, but for now I leave you with this from Mike Nichols. We tend to neglect the place from which the best ideas come from, namely that part of ourselves that dreams. The unconscious is our best collaborator. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.